Welcome to the NASPP's Equity Expert Podcast Series. My name is Kathleen Cleary, and I'm the Education Director for the NASPP. Today, I'll be discussing irrationality, behavioral biases, and award design with Josh Schaefer, Director from Equity Methods. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is actually one of a series of podcasts on interesting and educational topics, primarily related to equity and careers in equity. You can access the entire podcast series at naspp.com forward slash equity expert, and that's all one word, and you can listen through your computer or smartphone, whichever is most convenient for you, and you can also subscribe to the podcast series, and then you'll actually get an email whenever we post a new episode. So as I mentioned, I'm here with Josh Schaefer, who's a director at Equity Methods. Josh has a PhD in finance from the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago, and one of his areas of focus was behavioral finance. Today, Josh will be discussing some of the drivers of behavioral economics and finance and the impact that they might have on designing equity incentive programs. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Kathleen. It's really great to be here. Well, we are very glad to have you. And let me just start with a basic question. What got you interested in this topic? It's a great question. I've really always been interested in behavioral economics and behavioral finance. And in grad school, I got to study psychology and, and how irrationality can drive outcomes. Really fortunately, I, I've had the rare ability to learn and hear ideas from the likes of Dick Thaler, who's the only person I know of to both win the Nobel Prize in economics and appear with Selena Gomez in a hit movie. Well, that's quite the resume for him. Yep. He won the Nobel in 2017 for all of his work, but I think he may have been happier to be in the big short next to Selena, where he discussed the hot hand effect and how these impacted synthetic CDOs. You know, he's really great at explaining these types of things. So, so that's why, of course. Of course. Now, over time, the thinking of some of the great minds in this area have continued to take on more and more weight in society and policy. It started with the first economics book that I ever remember hitting the bestseller list, Freakonomics by Steve Levitt and Stephen Dubner. And more recently, we see books like Nudge by Dick Thaler and Cass Sunstein and Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, which show how people are responding to incentives and also that we just don't behave the way that we allegedly should. And why does this matter to executive compensation? Well, that's what I wanted to think about. So the fact of the matter is that people don't respond to situations in the way that classical economics says that they should. Where classical economists say we wouldn't necessarily be willing to step into a casino or buy a lottery ticket, we tend to be horrible at estimating and understanding probability, and then we just don't know what to do with it. Tell me a little more about behavioral economics and finance. Of course. Think for a second about how far you would go to save 50 bucks on a $200 vacuum cleaner. Now, how far would you go to save $50 on a $2,000 refrigerator? Most people would be willing to drive pretty much across town for the vacuum deal, but wouldn't find the refrigerator deal worth going to the, even the next closest Home Depot location. And then think about saving $50 on a car or a house, and it's pretty much nonsensical. But if we take the other end of the spectrum, if somebody puts a toy that you want on sale on Black Friday and it's usually $60 and now it's 10 
Well, that's a recipe for news stories about 24-hour lines and fistfights in the store aisle. Now, a classical interpretation says that $50 is $50, full stop. But we know that people will spend much more effort to save that $50 on the $200 vacuum than that bigger purchase refrigerator. Well, that makes sense, I think, and I probably would be in that same group where I drive across town for the vacuum, but not necessarily for the refrigerator. Yeah, and you're certainly not the only one. I talked about Dick Thaler, and one of his famous experiments was to give half of the people in a room a mug. And he asked those people how much they would be willing to sell the mug for. Usually it was a mug for whatever college campus they were on. Those who got the mug typically said they would sell it for an average of about 7 or $8. But if you didn't get the mug and you were asked how much you would be willing to buy it for, people typically said about 5 bucks or less. Now, it's the same mug, but there are definitely different values depending on whether you were selected randomly or you weren't. Or in his words, the endowment effect. He's also the reason there's that button on your 401k that will allow you to increase your contribution automatically at your next raise. That means that you don't miss money that you never had. In another experiment, Dan Ariely asked students to build small Lego toys, and he paid them $2 for each one. One group, as they finished each toy, they displayed them in front of the students. The other, the experimenter just picked them apart as soon as the builder was done. They both did the same amount of work, and they got the same amount of money. But when they saw the finished product, those builders tended to make, on average, 11 Lego figures, and the ones who saw their work destroyed made only seven. And I imagine we've all been somewhere where we felt that our work just wasn't valued and that it didn't matter, certainly not in our current assignments, but others. Yeah, it's definitely right. And it it certainly doesn't add much motivation if you don't see part of the finished product. And that right there is an important tool for motivating employees. There's really a whole literature on this, and it's got a lot of interesting conclusions. A former classmate of mine, Lauren Cohen, found that McDonald's employees are more likely to invest in their retirement account in McDonald's stock than Taco Bell employees in the stock of Yum! Brands, their parent company. Now, for McDonald's employees, it's the company they work for. It's the name of the sign above the door. So they're going to feel connected with the performance of their store and the brand. But for Yum! Brands, it may be a bit of a foreign concept to a lot of workers. Here's a company whose name isn't on the sign. And by the way, they also own two of your competitors, KFC and Pizza Hut. He ascribes this effect to how people's own company loyalty impacts their investment decisions. Now, we can exploit this by giving a clear line of sight into performance and choosing metrics that matter. And there's really nothing new here. Back in the 1940s, companies tried to sell cake mixes, and these mixes just required water to be added. They used dehydrated milk and eggs. People really weren't buying a lot of them, but they found something really interesting. When they repackaged them and took out the eggs and milk and had people add these themselves, which, by the way, costs more money and it's more work, sales took off. And that's really what we see on shelves today. Now, when I bake a cake, which I don't do too often, but when I do, I do feel a sense of pride, even if I know that Betty Crocker helped me on my way. But as it turns out, people just don't feel the same sense of accomplishment 
unless, well, in this case, quite literally, they crack a few eggs. Well, I'm not much of a cook, so I would take all the help I can get, but it's probably not the norm. I'm just thrilled if it turns out at all. I, I hear you. I hear you. As long as the kids don't throw it back in my face, I, I'm always thrilled. But for a while, what we saw here was just an economic bag of party tricks. But what started to happen is people showed that these issues really mattered. The choices that people make depend not only on the outcomes, but how they're presented. And smart companies are going to listen to their consumers. I, I would think so, their consumers and their employees. So, you know, if we can make people make more favorable choices on how they shop or work, what they're giving to their 401k and all these other personal and social matters, how can we use that to improve the way we think about paying our executives and, and all of our employees? So I focused on two areas in this thought. The first is understanding why design matters and how we can get the best results out of the same or a similar award just by tweaking it using some of these behavioral principles. The second is looking at the fact that we're just bad at the concept of probability in general. That means the way that we process numbers can cause mistakes in both award design and in implementation. Josh, this is a really interesting discussion, but I think maybe it would help to present an example to our listeners. Uh, of course, it's, it's a really great idea. And let me just turn you into to my subject here and, and all of the listeners as well. I'm going to give you a choice of either $5 for sure, or we can flip a coin. If it's heads, you get $10. If it's tails, we just walk away and, and nothing happens. So if you, want, if you don't mind picking between that $5 or a 50% chance of, of getting 10 on the coin flip. Well, I think I'll take $5 and run out to Starbucks, the sure thing. Sounds good. And, and I think you can almost get a latte for that. Just about. So, um, but now, now let me give you a little bit of a different game. So this time I'm going to give you the whole latte, right? We'll, we'll give you $10 just off the bat. Now I'm going to flip a coin and if it comes up heads, you keep that money. Nothing happens. But if it's tails, you have to give me all the money back. If you prefer, you can just pay me $5 or half of that 10. We'll call it insurance, and, and we can just get the coin flip. Okay. Well, maybe I'll take my chances. I've got a good chance of keeping $10. Of course, and you've done what a lot of listeners probably did as well, um, and it's completely irrational. In both cases, if you're going to take the gamble, Heads means you get 10 bucks, and tails means you walk away with nothing. But if you take the sure thing, it's $5. But the second time, the way I've ordered it, you had the $10 and it's a loss, not a gain from the $5. Now, some people might have picked differently, but what we know is that tinkering around a bit by giving them different money up front or changing other pieces, we can somewhat predictably change the way that people are going to react to these types of gambles. And the reason is, is that we know that people are more willing to take risks with gains than with losses. They don't want to lose money, and that can sting quite a bit. It works the same way if we're talking about the risk of vaccinating people based on how we state how many people will be saved versus how many will experience complications and get sicker or even die. In fact, what we know is that if you guys change the NASP early bird sign-up to a late sign-up penalty, Plenty of studies have shown that you'll get more early conference signups to avoid that perceived loss. 
Well, based on that recommendation, Josh, I'll, I'll present it to management and see what happens. Uh, of course. And, and for anybody listening here, I'm not changing the prices at all, so, so don't blame me. It's just how the decision is framed. That's kind of the key point here. Now, there are a few things that are, that are causing these kinds of things. And one of them is that we tend to look at things like these gambles in isolation. So we look at each one completely independently rather than thinking about that big picture. So if you tell me I didn't get a raise, I'm going to be very concerned, even if my bonus went sky high this year and is expected to do the same next year. Uh, another side is that we don't want to expose ourselves to risk on the upside. But if we're losing money, we'll sometimes take even bigger bets. And often we do that to get back to what we feel is even. So, okay, if I'm irrational, what does that mean for compensation? Well, say we're paying you as our CEO. And we can give you 10,000 units at Target, and those can vest from 0 to 200%. Or we can give you 20,000 units at max that vest from 0 to 100%. I think if you look at it, the award is the same. The value is the same. But if you look at the second one, you may be a bit more concerned about losing out on that top payout because you feel you were promised that. You might take some more risk relating to the stock price in the whole company. All because going down from 20,000 to 19,000 shares now is framed as a loss and not a gain. Okay, so that's clearly something that people should note when they're structuring awards. Are there any other things that people should be concerned about? There's another idea that I think is particularly relevant to performance awards, and that's called idiosyncratic fit. People put a lot more energy into programs they feel that are tailored to them. The classic example is a credit card that gives miles on their own airline versus one that gives points which can be transferred to the same miles on any airline. Okay, so clearly the miles on any airline is a better deal, but you're probably going to tell me that I should prefer the other or maybe I'm being irrational again. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Any airline is a better deal, but what we know is that frequent travelers – work really hard to get that higher level of status. Even if it's more restrictive, if it lines up with their other choices, people really want to, to do more, to spend more. And it ties into a number of other things. Think about that cake example. People are more interested in putting in more effort because they feel like they've done something. From a compensation standpoint, if you're thinking about how to incentivize your top folks, consider those metrics where they'll feel they're the most in line of the work. So instead of just saying what your revenues are, what about the number of widgets sold? Now, of course, you want to manage that, right? You don't want your execs dropping widgets to a dollar when they're worth 20. So we do have to be careful in how we make this work well. Okay, so you mentioned two areas, and we've been talking about incentives and how plans are put together. You were also talking about issues with understanding probability. Among other things, you mean when you told me that in an email to fly safely, and I might have given you a little bit of a hard time? As you did, and that serves me right for wishing you well, Josh. Uh, <laughs> you know it, um, and, and it is, and I appreciate the sentiment, but fly safely, it, it's just part of the way we think, but you know, nobody would have ever told me to drive safely to the airport, but statistically speaking, I've got a 20-mile drive to the airport 
that's far more dangerous than flying 2,500 miles across the country. And when I'm driving, I have some control. I can buy a safer car. I can drive at the speed limit or, well, I'm in Arizona, so I stick to a few miles above so I don't get rear-ended on anything. You use turn signals, all of that stuff. When you're on a plane, there's really not much you can do to be safer other than listening to the safety briefing and remembering to put the mask on over your mouth and your nose if you happen to have that happen. Well, I have driven on the freeways in Arizona, so next time I will wish you a safe drive to the airport. And and definitely, uh, again, you know, it's, it's good to think about wanting people to be well, but we do tend to be very bad judges of of what's likely and what's unlikely. Low probability events can just seem more likely to happen than they actually are. And by the way, things like recent occurrences, well, those matter a whole lot. It's tough not to sound crass when discussing this stuff. And and I don't want to come off that way, but the news really doesn't report much on car crashes. What I call more typical deaths, just don't get the news coverage. But plane crashes, they dominate the news cycle for days, weeks, and years later, you remember them well. You can probably remember a plane crash in 2014 in Malaysia, where about 250 people died. And I think everybody here was captivated by a soccer team caught in a Thai cave. Fortunately, there all the kids made it out alive. One rescuer did die during the efforts. But that was hours and hours and hours of news coverage. It was. And I can tell you, I checked regularly on those boys until they were all rescued. As did I. And, and I feel bad for everybody involved. But remember, about nine teens a day die in the U.S. in car accidents. And about six times as many people died in America yesterday from heart disease than the total number of people on that Malaysian air flight. So... Again, these are more preventable deaths. So a plane crash last week or a successful product launch last year, we're going to think about those and we're going to overweight them thinking about next year. But we're going to think less about the more common business factors, which have driven our world for years. There are a number of different biases at play here, and they all move things around in somewhat different directions. One example Things that happen more recently seem more likely. Another one is confirmation bias. That means that we're more willing to accept a purported fact if it agrees to what we already believe. Now that sounds a little bit familiar in today's political climate. Uh, You certainly know it. And just picking an example that's a little bit less charged, say you believe in aliens and you believe they've landed somewhere. Well, then Area 51 is probably a lot more interesting and mysterious to you than if you just don't think that's a thing. Another area is anchoring. Now, we commonly forecast based on the last number we see whether or not it's at all related to what we're doing. We know that events that are incredibly unlikely, like winning the lottery, are unlikely, but we fail to understand just how unlikely they really are. An example In October of 2017, the Mega Millions lottery changed things up. They changed the probability of winning from 1 in 260 million to 1 in 300 million. I think generally what we found was that people really didn't understand or consider the difference in the game at all. 
But what happened was you had a number of blockbuster jackpots due to those lower odds and the higher difficulty of winning. So prizes rolled over one time after the next. So how should that impact us relative to award design? Well, hopefully lottery tickets don't define your award designs too well. If they do, then you've got to focus on getting something traceable that people can understand. But when we think about probability, we have to think about how we're setting our performance ranges. And there, things like not realizing how probable things are can be a big problem. One area that I focus on is overconfidence. Now, when I use that term, what I mean is we tend to overestimate how accurate we are when answering tough questions, or more importantly, making predictions. A common test for this is to give people odd questions like the height of a mountain or population of a city and asking them to give you a range containing the correct answer nine out of 10 times. It's pretty tough to do on a podcast, but I've actually at the Equity Methods website um, put up a companion blog post where I have 10 of these questions. So you can try this yourself and see how you do, but I'll give you the result. Typically the answer's ranges are just way too small. So if you're trying to set targets, thinking about what's 20 and 80% likely, you may actually be a third and two thirds or, or even tighter than that. And that inability to use probability gets coupled with the difficulty in forecasting over a long period, usually three years. Well, Josh, this is really a fascinating discussion, especially if you're a Selena Gomez fan, or if you believe in aliens. But as we start to think about winding up this podcast, what can we do to improve our design and metric setting for equity awards? I think it's very important to do what we can to work against these biases. More information is always good. So open the lines of communication with the executives. Understand their expectations for what they should reasonably get in different business outcomes and communicate what the awards actually mean. A little bit of knowledge and analysis can help a lot of filling in the blanks of our own. On the other side, comp committees are increasingly looking for more rigor in how ranges are set. I think that it's key to no longer pick numbers just based on projections without doing work around them. Think about how you'll respond to good news and bad news and what that means for where you'll end up. There's a lot of data out there, and while it may not be perfect, it's a lot better to use what data you can than to risk your CEO's comp package on what virtually ends up being a, a fancy game of pick a number. Well, that's for sure. Josh, let's leave our listeners with some guidance as to how they can go back and implement some of these. How can you apply this actually with companies? And there are a few ways we do that. It, it tends to be pretty customized. First and foremost, we look at testing management's assumptions with data. We see if the ranges of results make sense. And if we bring in historical behavior from the company and its peers, how that changes things. Now, that involves a lot of data and visualizations and things that feel like prediction games that we've talked about above. Other ways we've gone from more abstract numbers to things the brains can use and process. We even work with how earnings and stock price will move together. Now, that's not something that matters from an accounting perspective because performance conditions don't matter to the value on ASC 718, but it's always good to know how your pay program will actually work. 
we use Monte Carlo simulation in those cases. And of course, that's a fancy way of saying set up good models and see how they work when the world moves randomly. We use it all the time for valuation and we can use it for these problems as well. It can solve a lot of problems. After that, we work closely with management to refine the numbers. Key impacts are breaking down what the factors are, what might occur, and how the company might respond. It's a key reason why we make errors in predictions. We just don't think too many steps ahead. In some cases, we've worked with award recipients to see what factors they feel they have the most control over, what they're looking to get out of the program, and and how to best reward them, maintaining the appropriate pay-for-performance incentives. Overall, it's important to realize there aren't any one-size-fits-all solutions here. We expect that companies are going to continue to be more and more thoughtful about award design, especially as comp consultants and proxy advisors continue to clamp down. And I think it's the right attitude to have. It's key to focus on what matters and how you can design a plan that, that works for your company. Absolutely. That's great guidance, Josh. And I just want to tell you, thank you so much for taking your time today and sharing your knowledge and your expertise with everyone listening. It really was an interesting discussion. And I just want to thank everyone who listened in today as well. Remember, you can access all the podcasts in the Equity Expert series at naspp.com forward slash equity expert. Thank you, everyone.